This is Encounters, a dialogue that brings you multifaceted life stories you don't want to miss. Beijing back then was not a 24-hour city. So when I arrived at the airport at 8 o'clock at night, by the time we were going into the city, everything was dark. There were no lights, except some street lights. All the restaurants were closed and the buses were taking everyone home. Then also the next day, bicycles. I sometimes jokingly say China is my drug of choice because it's like, you know, being on a drug, it's like everything is really amazing and fascinating. Something amazing was going to happen. We didn't know what it was, but this was a momentous change and something big was going to happen. And part of the reason that I could not get away from China was watching that unfold. What draws me here and keeps me here is, in fact, there are things that I still don't understand about it and seem downright puzzling to me that I still want to understand. So part of the fun, the interest here is the intellectual stimulation and excitement of trying to solve all these puzzles. Hello and welcome. I'm Manling in Beijing. My guest today is David Mosa, the Associate Dean of the Yenching Academy at Peking University. The master's program provides full scholarships to elite students who are interested in China studies and come from all over the world. David says he sometimes feels envious of his students at the newly built Yenching Academy because when he started learning Chinese as a young man, he didn't get a lot of help or encouragement, quite the reverse. And as for Chinese materials, like textbooks, courses, or scholarships, they just didn't exist. Now let's go back to your very early days. I was wondering that China has become your second home, right? Yeah, it's verging and on becoming my first home. First home, <laughs> I know. Okay. <laughs> but when did you learn about China? Well, wow. Do we have an Go hour to, or two? Of course, you know, this studio is booked for you completely. <laughs> I, I guess there's a Chinese phrase, which is yuanfen. Yes. Which is sort of a How do you translate fate, I challenge you. Uh, the sort of fate that brings people together. I think I was always interested, I know I was always interested in languages. When did you realize that you have this curiosity? Oh, very early, or very early on. In junior high, I had a girlfriend who was half Japanese. Her father was a military, the mother was Japanese, even though the girl was my girlfriend, but I was more fascinated by the mother, actually. The I Japanese would, yes, lady, right? I would sit there and I would, because sometimes she wouldn't get our jokes and she said things yeah, in a strange yeah. way. And I kept thinking, what is she thinking? Yeah. She speaks Japanese. What would it be like to be thinking in Japanese? But why didn't you pick up Japanese? Instead, you pick it up Chinese, I mean. Well, the reason for that is probably when I was in high school, my parents were very unusual in that they really, really liked foreign students themselves. We lived in a small college town. And on the Christmas holidays, when all the students would go home, there was a program where you could invite uh, foreign homestay. homestay yeah, foreign wow. students to live in the home. So we happen to have uh, two students uh, from Taiwan. You know why? Are... Because the Chinese mainland was not opened yet. 
That's right. You could never have students from Chinese mainland. Yeah, to, not at that time. As yeah. a home. So anyway, these two women were living in our home, and I heard them speaking Chinese, and I started to ask them, "Can you teach me a little bit of Chinese?" And、uh, I became fascinated with the, the language and the script, especially. I thought it was beautiful and amazing. And th- this is funny. People will think this is weird, but the first Chinese phrase I learned was not "ni hao" or what is that? It was "chi pu tao pu tu pu tao pi." Chi pu tao pu tu pu tao pi. Tongue twister, a、My、Chinese tongue、goodness. twister. My goodness, it's like a seashell on the seashore. That's right. right. That's right. That's right. So these two women were thought this was so hilarious that me trying to say this tongue twister. They laughed. They recorded me. They said we've got to show that you know that our friends. They never heard a foreigner try to speak Chinese. And I tell you, I got hooked. I started learning the language on my own. I never took a course in Chinese. Wow, self-taught. Self-taught. So long story short. My interest caused me to actually learn a little basic Chinese, and I was actually a music student,、uh, masters in music、oh. at Indiana University,、mm-hmm. and I got an amazing opportunity from a professor there who was a friend of mine, who heard that his book, which is a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called Gertel Escher Bach. Douglas Hofstadter is his name. Said,、uh, David, I hear that they're translating my book at Peking University. How would you like to go to Peking University and join the translation team and、wow. help ensure the quality of the translation? And、uh, he did not have to ask me twice. I said, you know, I'll drop absolutely everything and go there because that would be the most amazing thing. I knew the book well. I was trying to learn Chinese. And the、Chinese. book is on what sort of music? It was one of the earliest works on artificial intelligence. Really?、Yes. I mean, a music teacher? No, no, no. This was someone in the computer science. Ah,、uh, computer science.、Yeah. Okay. So a wonderful opportunity for me. The book itself is also fascinating. It's not just computer science and artificial intelligence. It's also computer translation, language, lots of music issues, and, and things about psychology, philosophy, mind, and meaning. One of the most amazing books of all time, and even one a book that's very influential now in China and was back then. That book was almost legendary. So many people wanted to see the translation. So he actually suggested to you to go to Peking、yes. University. But how did you? He said, "He said I'll pay your way. I'll pay、really? your plane." Really? My God. Yes, absolutely.、No. So how could I? This was the. How equi- could you turn down? This was like the my equivalent of the Engineering Academy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Three room and door aboard a plane top flight. Did he actually really paid for your cost? Absolutely. Oh my goodness! I was Personally, to, I, out of his own pocket. Out of his own pocket. My goodness! I was a poor graduate Thank student. Thank him.、Yeah. So do you regard him as your mentor? My mentor, my best friend, and one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And without him, I wouldn't be literally would not be here. This book was very complicated, very long. It's seven hundred pages. It took many translators to finish the job. It really took us a good four years or more to finish the translation. This was in nineteen eighty seven. Word processors were not common back then. In fact, really not available for the most part.、Yeah. So I was reading stacks of translation written by hand. And for a foreigner who was trying to study Chinese. And had just. Did you, you feel、imagine. you were living in hell? I was. It was. It was hell. <laughs> I, in fact, I, my first thought when I saw this, I said, "Okay, we're back on a plane to go back to the U.S. because this is not going to work.、You're、I'm not going to run away, right? I'm not going to be able to do it." But I had this secret weapon, which is that I had the original English. What、so、do you mean by original? So,、English? so if I'm looking at this page of just what looks to me like just random chicken scratching, right? Yeah. I say somewhere in. I look at the original and it says computers are useful for something. I said somewhere in this sentence must be the word jisuanji for computer. So I would look and look and look and I said、oh, this looks kind of like yes. Oh, there, that's the word for computer. And so I slowly, <laughs> over the course of several years, started to learn how to read the handwriting of Chinese people, which can be very difficult, even for Chinese people sometimes. So I got very good at reading Chinese then. Wow! 
it was a challenge, but it was great fun. I really enjoyed it. You know, I was thinking that how come this hellish sort of experiences didn't really drive you away and then kept you settled down here in Beijing and then married with a daughter, right? So I'm not kidding. 30 right? more years ago. Yeah. Are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> tell me why. Did you? For someone like me, it's a joy. The, the challenge is part of the fun of it. And of course, it's, it's exhausting. That's why my eyesight is so bad now. It's mm. for years of looking at Chinese characters on a page. Can you see me clearly? No. <laughs> Who are you? What's your How name again? You? Okay. <laughs> but no, that was part of the challenge. And it still is a challenge. Chinese is a very challenging and difficult language. But this was my heaven on earth because these were the issues I was always interested in cross-cultural differences, psychological differences, philosophical differences. And then, of course, the confession, you know, is the real reason I'm here is because Chinese food tastes better than any food in the world. <laughs> you have a big appetite. <laughs> You're gourmet, right? Yeah. But you stayed on mm. and until you got a PhD degree, right? Mm -hmm. On what? Uh, Chinese, Chinese? Chinese studies from uh, the University of Michigan. And I, my focus was linguistics and uh, philosophy. University of Michigan. University of Michigan. Right. It's not Peking University you got the no, degree. No, 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 no. I was not a student. No, I was you not a were, student at Peking uh, You were sent for the translation. I was a visiting project. scholar. You were visiting scholar. Yes. yes. After, soon after I started the translation project, I applied for University of Michigan for a master's and PhD. Oh. So from years 1987 to about 1995, I was going back and forth. And then after graduating, mm -hmm. got your PhD degree in Michigan. Mm -hmm. How come you just ended up here? Of course, this People was a, in love with this somebody. Was a <laughs> Eventually, this was a very big decision because many people could see me staying here for a few semesters teaching at a university. But of course, not you've got to go long. back. You've got to no. eventually go back to the United yeah. States, right? I was not very interested in jumping into the job market because, you know, a PhD in Chinese studies was not someone who's attractive. And it's very hard to get even my fellow students. Many of them struggled for years to get a tenured job. So I didn't want to do that right away. I had to contacts at the Beijing Foreign Studies University, and they said, oh, yeah, sure, come and speak, uh, to teach uh, some courses in translation theory and psycholinguistics, which is what I really loved most of all, right? Is it because you couldn't really find a good job in the United States? I didn't even look. You didn't even look. I didn't even look. Because you can't tell that there were not so much sort of jobs available. Oh, yet. that was obvious. That's still yeah. the case okay. today, right? So, mm -hmm. so what happened was uh, I taught there for eight, maybe eight years, seven years. I absolutely loved it. It was just amazing. The students themselves were all bilingual. I mean, they all spoke very good English and Chinese. So the teaching the classes was just a delight for me because they were very interested in the subject matter. They were interested in hearing my side of it as a native English speaker. And uh, I think those are some of the happiest uh, moments of my life is in those classes with these very bright students uh, exploring these translation issues. So it was very much fun. So and your first visit to China is in 1987 mm -hmm. when you joined the translation program. Right. What sort of uh, impression did you have? Well, first of all, Beijing back then was not a 24-hour city. So when I arrived at the airport at 8 o'clock at night, by the time we were going into the city, everything was dark. There were no lights, except some street lights. All the restaurants were closed, and the buses were taking everyone home. The Mobanchu, you know, was taking everyone home. Gosh, I'd love to see what Beijing looks like, but there's no street lights. <laughs> there's nothing. Then also the next day, bicycles. 
ah. it was a you you know that you we saw it in the in the, in the uh, movies, newsreels right? and then in the newspapers yeah. but until you have been in this environment to see just a sea of bicycles was just unbelievable i had already read quite a read bit about, about it China. right so yeah. i'd read the works of orville shell who was like a groundbreaking journalist and really could paint a very vivid picture of, of what china was like at that time mm -hmm. so i wasn't surprised on the surface but just being here and seeing the, you know, the vast numbers of people and the bicycles and also the smells of beijing what sort of smell is Both that? good and bad. The smell of, you know, jianbing and the sort of That's the a good food, one, street right? food, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. uh, and even chou dofu, stinky dofu. Also the smell of coal oil that they used in the, that they burned mm -hmm. for food and stuff. It was a sensory overload, I have to say. I sometimes jokingly say China is my drug of choice because it's like, you know, being on a drug, it's like everything is really amazing and fascinating. So my second day in Beijing, I was already on a bicycle riding amongst that throng you know, of bicycles. You know, drug of choice means that you're going to be addicted to it, right? Addicted, but that's there's, a good analogy. But there's but there's no harmful side effects. <laughs> but yes, I'm addicted. Did yes. you get a bicycle yourself immediately the next they day? Because me. we don't have a very uh, robust or whatever sophisticated transportation that's system right. of tubes or subways right. ready for you. That's right? right. The Beijing subway was only line one and line two at that point. <laughs> yes, the people in the computer science department where I was a visiting scholar, they said, "Here, we're loaning you this bicycle." And they said, you know, it's a poor which means it's a broken down old bike, but you could still ride it. You didn't buy a bicycle yourself. You still loan the bicycle. Oh, I, you, I think were I, you being too stringent? They had play, They had extra bicycles. This was the Peking University. You don't. You don't need to buy one for yourself. Yeah, I don't right? need to buy one. It was a bike that some professor. Uh, it was flying. Like, it was flying wow. pigeon. A flying pigeon. Yeah. We have only two or three brand names then. Yeah, Yongjiu, right? But they are really good. Feng Huang, three, three of them. Yeah, pillars to the brand names, right? Everybody used them. Do you think you stand out? Your clothes were different from what we were wearing then. It wasn't so much that. It was just that everything back then, and you know, I won't give away your age, but eighties, you probably remember, were the just the physical conditions in the dorm rooms and people's homes. The the hutong were still there. It was a lot of still existed. Just a level of uh, poverty and uh, you know dirtiness and stuff that, that an American just had never that I as a middle class American had never experienced. Chinese people then they they didn't have a shower system, and most of the household were not using even toilets. Mm -hmm. You know they have public toilets right. there. Were you enjoying your standards of living then? Were you treated nicely? I mean. I was treated nicely. The standard of living, I wouldn't call. It's America's good enough a, compared. It was, I was living in the student dorm at uh, Xiaoyuan, which, by the way, is where my students now are living. So it's kind of amazing that I, they're living in the dorm where I lived, although they've remodeled it a lot. But I was mainly not staying in the dorm room, but I was going out and, and hanging out with the students we were working with and also meeting people and going into their homes. Do you have a shower room within the dormitory or you need to no, go to public shower? Public shower, yeah. See, but how could you get used to that as a middle class sort of uh, American? I, because, you know, people have asked me this sort of question. I mean, if you're interested in a place and you're interested in the people and you're, and you're interested in the culture, that all becomes just secondary considerations. If I'd wanted to go someplace for luxury and ease and familiar food and stuff, I wouldn't have come to China. I would have gone somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It was challenging, but as one foreigner, Jeff Robbie, who was the former ambassador from Australia, he characterized it. He said, uh, the 1980s, the reform and opening up, it was romantic. 
And what he meant by this, most Chinese would probably not use that term, you know, romantic. <laughs> but it was romantic in that China had just undergone this phase transition, a very important shift in its very economic culture, and ultimately it's the people culture, which was from the old system, the Danway system, into something like emerging market economy. Market economy, right. So there was a sense here of great optimism and hope and also just a big question mark that was so enticing and so evocative. What was going to happen? Because everyone knew that this was a big, big change, especially the young people that I was dealing with. They suddenly had this intense interest in foreign things. They now could read foreign novels. I think there were three different translations of Marquez's uh, Hundred Years of Solitude, mm -hmm. the famous novel. I'm sure the translations were just done as a labor of love. No one cared about money. No one had money. So material life is... Secondary, Secondary, third, even, you know, fourth or whatever, right. way behind, right? Yeah, but people were thinking that now is the chance foreign and Chinese culture have come together and that something amazing was going to happen. We didn't know what it was, and they didn't know what it was, but this was a momentous change and something big was going to happen. And part of the reason that I could not get away from China was watching that unfold because I knew this was going to happen. I knew, history in the making. Yes, I knew that this was history in the making. I couldn't have predicted what we're seeing now, but I knew at the time, and I think a lot of foreigners did know, that this was going to be, in 10 years, 20 years' time, this was going to be the big story geopolitically in the world, was this rise of China. And I was excited to be a part of it, because I, as I said, for me, being a bridge between the two cultures was the most exciting place to be, because I also am a lover of culture, but I grew up in Western culture and in American culture. And right now I was obsessed with learning more about Chinese culture. So here I was in a, in a world where everyone around me was focused on the West and on the U.S. culture and wanting to know more about it. And here I was focused on China, wanting to know more about that. And so talk about a chemical reaction. Me just being with Chinese speakers and Chinese or ordinary people for me was like an intense feeling of intellectual, emotional, and cultural curiosity. And that's just kept me here all this time. You make me excited by hearing that <laughs> you guys, the early arrival, you know, people are describing China as romantic mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> and revealing itself all sorts of uncertainties right. and unknown worlds. So it's right. the, the word evocative of unknown world. Right. Nothing is for sure, but it's going to the direction of hope. Right. Wow. And then that is the thing that makes you stay. And that is the thing make you and your peers, very limited number of foreigners mm -hmm. then, right, mm -hmm. decided to stay. Mm -hmm. After so many years, almost 30 decades, more than 30 decades, right? Since 1987. Th three, three decades. 30, 30 years. 30 decades. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not 30 that, decades. That's the Qing dynasty. We become antiques. Okay, after three decades, do you feel a sense of belonging here? At the very beginning, I think you would be followed by Chinese mm -hmm. and like, a, you know, people are seeing a monster mm -hmm. or something, you know, right. very different. And now you merge very well into the society. That's right. But I want to ask the inner heart mm -hmm. that do you feel you are part of the country? Can you call it, truly call it your first home? Okay, there's two parts to that. Let's see if I can express it clearly enough. If it felt exactly like home, I probably wouldn't want to stay here. And I said that earlier, you know, it's sort of my drug of choice. What draws me here and keeps me here is, in fact, the fact that it is not home and that there are things that I still don't understand about it and seem downright puzzling to me that I still want to understand. So part of the fun, the interest here is the intellectual stimulation and excitement of trying to solve all these puzzles. And also, you know, China changes very rapidly. So every year I have to adjust to new things here. So if it felt comfortable in that sense, 
maybe I wouldn't be so attractive to it. That's just my problem. I'm sort of an intellectual masochist when it comes to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The harder it is, the more you know, I'm stuck on it. You know, The other thing is, I think this notion of home, especially nowadays, is probably a little overstated. There were always things about the United States that, that didn't feel comfortable to me and I didn't like. And, and when I came to China, some of those things I found uh, were exactly the opposite here, that in fact, they made great sense to me and I didn't have to go through any period of adjustment because I thought they just, I felt more comfortable here in many ways than I ever felt in my home country. And I give you just simple examples, like everyone at a meal eating off a central plates in the middle mm -hmm. of the table and we're all sharing the same yeah, dishes. Yeah, yeah. You so, like it or you hate yeah. it? No, I, I love it. When I first encountered that, I said, this is great. This is how a meal should be. We should all be eating the same things mm -hmm. and enjoying the same taste. And you know, I would go back to the United States and everyone would order their own little dish and, and I thought, there's something wrong with this. Why are we doing this? It's, you know, I want to taste that guy's pudding over there, but I don't dare do it because he ordered it, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think that was other cultural sorts of things. I always felt uncomfortable in the United States with a certain attitude of be proud of yourself, feel good about yourself, assert yourself. You know, if you feel some way, you, you know, sure of yourself and don't come across as sort of, you know, weak or sort of indecisive. And so, you know, people would say, oh, that was a good piano solo you played. And I would say, Oh, thank you. It wasn't that good. I didn't think it was all that good. And people would criticize me. He said, what are you doing? Don't say that. People compliment you. You say, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I put a lot of effort into it. I thought it was good too. Thank you very much. You know, my mother, other people would criticize me. Don't be so shy or don't be so, so modest. But when I come here and do that, they go, ah, you're very Chinese. <laughs> they understand perfectly. They take it as just a natural okay. thing. You don't brag here. So know? do you believe, I guess, you believe that China will never really practice hegemony, as you said. We are a much modest sort of nation, right? Oh, oh, oh Manling, there are many, <laughs> many aspects of Chinese society and culture that I feel... More modest than the Americans, not, not right? Not just modest, but I mean, in many, many ways. The, the Chinese people can be so caring of the other person. You know, the joke thing of the greeting, the traditional Beijing greeting, and the churlama, mm. you know, that's so typical of Chinese culture, you know, people are, have grown up with this notion of respect, especially for elders, and also of just a basic concern, you know, have you had your meal yet? Mm. Maybe you're hungry, or maybe... Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, problem with American society is we're sort of a different uh, basis. It's based more on like, self-fulfillment and self-actualization. And I find that off-putting very often. Whoever who can stimulate your intellectual part of your brain is actually your first home. <laughs> At least this is mine. Yeah. You know, I left Shanghai and came to Beijing and to start my career here. Not because that I love everything here in Beijing. It's because it constantly can feed me mm. with the stimulation that I wanted in my career. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank Welcome you. home. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yuan or Yuanfen is something of a nightmare for translators because it lacks an exact equivalent in English. At its core, the phrase means fate, destiny, divine intervention, karma, chemistry, or even luck that brings people together. It can describe a happy relationship between a man and a woman or the inevitability of good things happening to good people. David's story is a good example of how a single Chinese character can define a man's relationship with China. 
in the next episode, he shares more stories about his yuanfen with Xiangsheng, also known as crosstalk. I'm Manling. Thank you for listening to our program. And if you liked it and want to listen to us again, just find us on our website, chinaplus.cri.cn and Apple Podcasts. Thank、you